Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The outlines of the Battle of Chancellorsville are familiar to everyone who has spent some time studying the Civil War. We all know about how Joe Hooker outflanked Lee's army, in turn was attacked by Stonewall Jackson when Lee divided his forces. But no one pays much attention to that piece of Lee's army that was left behind during Jackson's flank march, or the much larger Union force that was supposed to take Fredericksburg behind Lee's back. In fact, those forces fought the Second Battle of Fredericksburg, one of the great lost opportunities of the war. It's an event not many know about, but we'll learn about, from the co-author of Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, The Battles of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church, May 3, 1863. That's Christopher D. White, and he'll be joining us today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to our first live show of the year 2014 as we return from winter break here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building at the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university or the building or anybody else, nor will my guest. We'll all talk for ourselves, as we always do. It is uh, a, a promising year for Civil War Talk Radio. At the end of the last semester, the ECU News Service decided to write a story about the program. Uh, I'm not sure how they came up with that idea, unless it was the memo I sent to them telling them it would be a good idea to do a story. But they they did, they wrote it up, and if it uh, appears on, our, on the Facebook page of impedimentsofwar.org. You can find a link to it. Um, with some very creative photographs, you can see what I look like wearing the headset as I talk to you at this moment. Uh, one of my colleagues observed the other photograph in the story. It shows the only neat and orderly part of my office, uh, which is otherwise every square inch covered with papers and books and, and things miscellaneously piled. Yet the photographer made it look like things were uh, all shipshape. It, it's it's quite an art and makes one realize that when... Uh, you know, Alexander Gardner was dragging bodies around to, to get the right look of the battlefield. Uh, uh, the art of, of photography really is an art more than a science. Um, well, the ECU story, which you can uh, still find if you go to ecu.edu, the, the main uh, webpage of the university, uh, they, they put it temporarily up on their front page. I think now it's in the archives. Uh, then got picked up by the Greenville Daily Reflector. And the Daily Reflector, uh, its motto, truth uh, in preference to fiction, 
presented uh, the same story, really, just copied word for word from the ECU website, uh, which is probably a good idea. But the result is I'm now more famous than than I was before by a small margin in Pitt County, North Carolina, and anywhere else people read the Daily Reflector. So, uh, to the vast new audience that that is listening because of that, welcome to the show, and especially uh, to... Students in History 3225 or History 6035, the two Civil War classes that I'm teaching this semester, uh, welcome and uh, hope you enjoy uh, the course. And uh, I'm looking forward to working with you as we, we go through the history of the war era. I'm also looking forward to the season ahead. We have uh, a powerhouse lineup, if I say so myself, uh, Next week, Alan Gelzo will join us. Uh, I promise this time, well, I, I hope deeply this time that nothing will interfere, to talk about his new book on the Battle of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. On January 29th, the next Wednesday, Frank Varney joins us with a uh, rather controversial and pointed take on U.S. Grant and his treatment of William Rosecrans. On February 5th, Martin Johnson has a brand new book about the Gettysburg Address and the the history of the actual documents, the papers on which it was written. On February 12th, Lincoln's birthday, we will return to the Gettysburg Address, another new book on the same topic by Jared Pateman will be our topic. And then on February 19th, as we uh, finish a little Lincoln swing, Richard Carradine, author of Lincoln, A Life, Purpose, and Power, one of the best Lincoln books of the last 10 years, will be with us, and he is always entertaining. February 26th, J. Michael Cobb will talk about the Battle of Big Bethel, the first, one of the first battles of the war, and then uh, Richard Slotkin, who is a professor of English and has written historical novels as well as history, has a provocative look at at the war called The Long Road to Antietam. All that coming up in the months ahead. Then comes spring break. Everybody party at that point. uh, And we'll line up shows to follow when we get there. You can follow all this at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Where Mark Gaffney keeps things uh, percolating, tells you who's been on the show, who's going to be on the show, and has links to the author's books that you hear about on the show. You can click there, buy your books through Amazon through that website, and it helps the website keep the lights on and the uh, bills paid. So, lots going on. We have uh, the Facebook page as well for Impediments of War. A listener recently asked a a hypothetical Civil War question there, and I have not answered it yet, and and probably will not, I'll I'll say here, just because there are so many avenues, and if, if to to talk Civil War, that opening another one is just going to be an even greater time sink than, uh, uh, than probably any of us can afford now, but, uh, that, well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, it's an interesting question. I invite you to look at it. And if people do want to discuss it on, on that Facebook page, they're certainly welcome to do so. But tonight we're talking about not a hypothetical event, well, or perhaps we are, uh, what happened and what didn't happen at the Battle of Chancellorsville. The authors of the book Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front are Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White. Chris Mikowski was on the show last year talking about the Battle of Fredericksburg. I had the pleasure of meeting him at Fredericksburg last summer and uh, on a day when a tornado warning drove us all into the shelter underneath the visitor center. It was quite exciting. Uh, Today, the other co-author, Christopher D. White, who uh, with Chris Mikowski has written a number of books, joins us to talk about the battles of 2nd Fredericksburg and Salem Church. Uh, Chris, are you there? I am. Thanks, Jerry, for having me on. Well, thank you for uh, joining us here. Uh, first question, the one that occurred to me immediately upon seeing the titles of the book is, how do you and Chris get along um, uh, having the, the same first name? Uh, I, in, in graduate school, I had a bunch of friends who, who adopted the nickname Bucky for all of them. 
and there were three or four guys, and they would just say, where's Bucky? I don't know. He was with Bucky. And I, I asked them once, how do you guys know, how does that work? And I'm not quite sure how it worked. How does it work for you guys? Uh, well, Chris and I have had a long relationship uh, starting back at the National Park Service where we were dubbed the two Chris's, uh, Chris and Chris. So uh, usually it'll be uh, either number one or number two. Uh, I usually go as number two with my name coming second on most of the books. Uh, so it's gone along pretty well. Um, you know, with uh, his name starting with a C, mine starting with a K, it makes it a lot easier uh, to differentiate on books and on articles. Uh, but in person, we're just simply known as the two Chris's. Now that, that you mentioned the National Park Service, uh, tell us a little bit about your your background there. Is that where you you practiced uh, Civil War history? I, that's where I started at uh, National Park Service at uh, Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, uh, which encompasses Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Wilderness, and Spotsylvania. And I started back there in uh, 2005 as an intern. Uh, they hired me on as a seasonal and then just couldn't get rid of me and uh, had me uh, as a permanent there for a while. And then that's where Chris and I both hooked up. He was a volunteer down there. He brought his uh, young daughter, Stephanie, down there. We called her Stephwall uh, for her love of Stonewall Jackson. And uh, so that's where the two of us really uh, sunk our teeth into the Civil War community. And uh, working behind the desk at the visitor's contact station one day, uh, the two of us had a instant friendship that, that grew from there. No, are you still connected with the Park Service, or what are you? Uh, what's the day job these days? Day job these days, uh, I'm a historical content editor for Savas Beatty for their Emerging Civil War series, a series of books that's based off of our, our blog, Emerging Civil War, uh, and also teach uh, continuing education at the Community College of Allegheny County outside of uh, Pittsburgh, just outside of the city limits, and then also teach for a place called the Penn Trafford Recreation Board, which is uh, out in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. So I still come down and volunteer at the Park Service, uh, see my old friends and, and colleagues uh, numerous occasions throughout the year. Uh, you mentioned the Emerging Civil War blog. What, uh, that's an interesting title. What is, what is Emerging? What, what, do you, what do you write about? Well, Emerging Civil War uh, really refers to what we consider the next generation of Civil War authors. Uh, three of us um, got together for an idea with the blog, Chris, uh, myself, and another friend of ours, Jake Strahelka, and we came up with the idea to put together a blog to give a voice to uh, new and up-and-coming uh, historians and authors. And uh, we had a lot of questions while we worked at the park as to how to get into the publishing world and how to get their names out there by a lot of our interns and seasonals. And uh, we really prided ourselves on trying to help uh, these younger folks out. Uh, so we decided to put together Emerging Civil War, which is open to any Civil War topic from politics to uh, the war battle to the battles themselves, and it's grown into a conclave of authors uh, that really have expertise in many areas uh, of the war. We have uh, some professors on there, Jim Brumall, down at the University of North Florida. Uh, we have some doctoral candidates like Kathleen Logothetis and uh, Chris Mikowski and myself. Uh, we're on there. And then it kind of branched off with Savas Beatty Publishing into a, a book series. Um, we have a number of books that are out already and a number that are coming out here in the spring and fall. Uh, you, know, you probably hear the same question. I certainly hear uh, people saying, you know, 150 years, what else is there to write about the Civil War? There's so many books already. Uh, but as, as your, your blog indicates, there's always something new emerging, some new angle that others haven't taken. Uh, and that's certainly the case with the book uh, here, Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front. Uh, we are just about to take a break, so let me just set the table, and you can think about this while we play a few messages. The The Battle of Chancellorsville, as, as most of our listeners are familiar with, begins with the Army of the Potomac uh, launching a flank attack, uh, getting onto uh, Lee's western flank, getting into the wilderness almost behind his army. And uh, on the brink of what looks like the climactic victory of the war, he's, he's got Lee where he wants him. And then everything goes uh, uh, pear-shaped in a great hurry. 
I'm going to leave it at that. We'll come back and uh, find out why things start to go wrong and what what happened on the other fronts of Chancellorsville. Our author today, our guest today, is Christopher D. White. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Christopher D. White about the Battle of Chancellorsville and what happened on the parts of the field that don't get talked about so much. Uh, uh, during the break, hopefully everyone had time to go to their West Point Atlas of the American Wars and get that open or opened an online map of the Battle of Chancellorsville. And there we see in front of us, uh, if we're looking at a north-oriented map, Hooker swinging around to our left, showing up in the wilderness. Uh, Lee in the town of Fredericksburg, just south of the Rappahannock River, looks to his left, has to send troops off to deal with this. But the other half of Hooker's army is still right there across the Rappahannock from Lee's force, and they're ready to cross and hit Lee from behind. Why doesn't this work? Why doesn't this mighty hammer and anvil crush Lee's army? Uh, let, let's start at the beginning. Why, why didn't they just dash across the river and attack? Well, Hooker was uh, coming up with a grandiose plan. His idea is to swing about one half the army around the backside of Lee. Uh, Lee had been ensconced in, in and around the city of Fredericksburg since late November of 1862. Uh, we had the great first battle of Fredericksburg that took place, and then Lee uh, and Hooker uh, essentially sit staring at one another for months as the spring campaign comes about. Uh, so Hooker comes up with the idea of a, a hammer and an anvil, if you will, where Hooker will swing one half of the army, which he considers the right wing, around the backside of Lee's forces. And then just below Fredericksburg, about two miles south of the city itself, he's got to cross uh, a force uh, which we consider the left wing. And that's under John Sedgwick. Uh, Sedgwick would actually have three corps initially under his command, uh, the third, first, and sixth. And the idea is to have Sedgwick cross 
keep Lee's attention focused squarely in the Fredericksburg area while this large hammer comes swinging in from the rear. And then hopefully Hooker can smash Lee between these two forces or force him to fall back south towards Richmond. Uh, because about the same time he has uh, his newly formed cavalry corps, Hooker does, move south towards Richmond, trying to wreak as much havoc as, as humanly possible, tearing up Virginia Central Railroad as well as uh, communication lines uh, with Lee's army and Richmond. So this is Hooker's idea. Uh, the problem is that uh, Lee doesn't play by Hooker's rules. Hooker, uh, or Lee, rather, uh, decides that he is not going to sit static and wait for Hooker to attack, and he's not going to retreat. He's going to put up a fight. So, uh, Lee moves, starts moving pieces of his army westward to deal with Hooker's uh, attack. And again, uh, those of us who are, are you know, who read about this, everybody's heard of uh, Stonewall Jackson's uh, flank march. Uh, the, these troops are moving uh, toward Hooker's main body. Um, but Sedgwick's force, the one that, that's supposed to to follow up. Um, well, let, let's stay with them. What? Uh, well, who was John Sedgwick? Was he the right man to be leading this force? John Sedgwick was not the right man to be leading this force. Uh, Sedgwick uh, had just come back to the Army of the Potomac uh, in December of 1862. Uh, he was a West Point graduate of the class of 1837. He, in fact, uh, graduated with Joseph Hooker, uh, and as well as his adversary here at the battle, which will be Jubal, Jubal Early. Uh, Sedgwick, uh, when he came into uh, the, back to the army after his, his three wounds at Antietam, uh, Sedgwick's going to initially be given the Ninth Army Corps. Uh, there's going to be some shakeup in the high command, uh, and eventually he gets shifted over to the Sixth Corps, where he's famously known as, as Uncle John. Uh, but as Sedgwick, he and his he is going to be given the task of essentially thinking on his feet. Uh, Hooker's army uh, is going to be about 12 miles as the crow flies from uh, the front where Sedgwick will cross below Fredericksburg. The problem, though, that he runs into is he has 25 miles uh, to, to trek to get any messages between uh, himself and Hooker and Hooker and Sedgwick. Uh, so there's a large gap, and one of the Union Corps commanders, uh, a Corps commander who would have to be out on that, that wing would have to think quickly on his feet. And, and Sedgwick proves that he is not that general. Uh, he's definitely a solid fighter. He's definitely a, a guy who you can rely on to try to get the job done. But by no means is he a quick, uh, a quick study of topography. In no way is he a quick study of what the enemy's intent is. And he's going to prove that time and again. Uh, throughout the Chancellorsville campaign, that uh, he is going to be baffled uh, by a small force of just over 10,000 Confederates who are going to keep him, as well as Hooker and the chief of staff of the Army Potomac, Dan Butterfield, uh, baffled as to their intentions. And you mentioned the, the difficulty in communication, that uh, since uh, the good news for Hooker is he's got Lee surrounded, Sedgwick to the east and Hooker to the west, uh, the bad news is that he's therefore on exterior lines, to use the uh, uh, the, the West Point term. They have to go around the, the circumference of the circle to communicate one wing to the other. How do they do, technically, how do they do that? Uh, carrier pigeons are not used in this war. Uh, what what methods of communication does Sedgwick have with Hooker? Well, well Hooker is going to actually have uh, telegraph lines strung uh, for those 25 or so miles between the two wings. Uh, his communication center, uh, as we would call it today, would be at Falmouth, which is a small village just across the river from Fredericksburg, uh, just a little bit northeast of the, of the town. Uh, the problem that they're running into with this telegraph system is that most of the telegraph wires that they're using were strung up throughout the winter of 62-63, what little insulation that they've had has disintegrated over the, over the winter. Uh, these wires have been used time and time again. They've been rolled up, put back, rolled up, put back. And it's really hampering communication getting between Hooker's wing and Sedgwick's wing. Uh, another issue that they're running into with the telegraph is the fact that the finicky system uh, that is run by battery power 
And if you don't have the exact battery power on each end, you have to have battery power on, power on each end of these telegraphs. If they're not properly uh, getting the electricity that they need, the message will only go so far or so fast. So as you read the, the dispatches that are coming back and forth, there's a large time gap, uh, sometimes up to eight hours between when Hooker sends an order to Sedgwick and when Sedgwick actually receives it uh, down at his headquarters. Uh, communications will, will break down further as uh, Sedgwick starts to move to help Sedgwick, to help Hooker, uh, as Sedgwick goes to help Hooker out towards Chancellorsville. Uh, he's going to start making a night march on the evening of May 2nd, and they're going to use torches, the Union Signal Corps. The problem is the Confederates can read these torches, so they stop using the, the torch system, and then they go to the old-fashioned way of putting a man on a horse and having him ride as fast as he can to uh, headquarters and back. One of the interesting things your book talks about uh, in terms of communication between the wings, or at least the information they're trying to communicate, was that the Army of the Potomac uh, was using balloons to observe the Confederates and to to get information that could help either Cedric or Hooker know what's in front of him. How did that work out? Uh, not very well. And the problem wasn't with the aeronauts, as they, they called themselves. The problem was with Hooker not believing exactly uh, what these men were seeing. Uh, most of the officers who uh, were dealing with these uh, essentially civilians who were going up, up in these balloons, uh, they didn't believe what, what the messages were coming back down from the balloons said. Uh, sometimes they were confused uh, that they uh, were overinflating numbers, they thought. Uh, at other times, they just simply didn't believe that the enemy was moving in the direction that these aeronauts were saying that they were. Uh, so there was definitely a, a fundamental lack of trust uh, in, the, in the messages that they were receiving and the intel that they were receiving from within their own uh, system. So it was a kind of a, a strange way of, of dealing uh, with this very um, good, this very good uh, asset that Hooker has. Uh, they don't use it, utilize it properly, and unfortunately, uh, since they're not utilizing it properly, it's going to fail them as well. One of the things that I, I thought was quite interesting about the uh, the the attack by Cedric's corps or, or several corps, uh, he crosses the Rappahannock River just as the Union Army had to do at the 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 famous Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862. Uh, in that battle, the, the Union troops had to build bridges across the river under fire and eventually uh, put troops on pontoon boats and, and made a. Uh, forced river crossing. Here, it's six months later, they've, they've learned how to do this, and Cedric gets half his guys across the river by putting them in these boats, and they, they row across and drive the Confederates off the far shore, and then there's room to, for the engineers to build the bridges. But Reynolds' corps doesn't get the memo and tries to build a bridge under fire just like they did in December. How, how could... Did, did I read that correctly? Did they... Act, try to build a bridge while they were being shot at? Absolutely. Uh, the, the, one of the main issues that we run into with uh, the second Fredericksburg crossing, uh, it'll take place on April 29th of 1863, and, and the plan is to, to uh, launch elements of the 6th Corps and the 1st Corps across south of the city and try to dislodge uh, a small Confederate force along the riverbank, establish a bridgehead, and this will be the bridgehead which, with which Sedgwick will try to keep Lee's attention as Hooker goes off and menaces Lee's rear. Uh, Sedgwick, though, is not only acting as the 6th Corps commander, he's acting as a, a, the left-wing commander. Uh, he has the 1st, 3rd, and 6th under his command. And clearly, uh, he doesn't understand that he's, he's acting almost as an army commander, uh, and he's not sending the right messages down to John Reynolds. Uh, Reynolds, in his defense in 1862 at the, the first battle of Fredericksburg, uh, his crossing was almost uncontested. Uh, he is going to uh, engage some elements of John Hood's division uh, who don't have the cover of the city like William Barksdale's forces did up, at, up in the city on December the 11th of 1862. So Reynolds was able to roll a few batteries online, send uh, U.S. sharpshooters as well as Pennsylvania bucktails down to the riverfront, lay cover fire, and have his bridges built. 
Well, the Confederates uh, were on to this ploy by uh, April, and they're down ensconced in this riverfront. They've built fortifications down along the riverfront, and they're going to have none of this as these Union soldiers decide to try to lay down this cover fire. Uh, so on the north side, or the northern crossing where Sedgwick's coming across, it's meticulously planned out where they will take these large pontoon boats, carry them down to the riverfront, use them to ferry infantry across while the uh, uh, engineers start to build these bridges. Reynolds, on the other hand, marches down to the riverfront, feels that he can put his engineers out there, blast away, and all will be well. Uh, and clearly it, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, it's going to take him a few extra hours to get across the river, and he will have to revert to that riverine crossing, piling some of the Iron Brigade into boats and ferrying them across the river. Now, eventually they do get across, and now they face uh, uh, just a fraction of Lee's army because Lee is, is off uh, uh, or starting to send troops off to deal with the, uh, uh, the, the rest of, uh, of Hooker's force, the main part of it. So what – I guess one – I won't ask the question, why does Hooker stop – when he's got Lee where he wants him, because there's no definitive answer for that, and uh, it would take us all night to to discuss. But the fact is that Hooker stops on May 1st. Uh, his, he's got his army marching toward Fredericksburg, and then just loses nerve and tells everybody, hold on where you are. Uh, meanwhile, Sedgwick is moving forward. He's got almost nobody left in front of him by this time. Uh, what does his force do? Uh, Cedric's force essentially sits and watches the Confederates uh, from afar. Uh, he's going to send out some faint reconnaissance. Uh, he will also bombard uh, the Confederate line a few times, trying to figure out what's back behind um, what's called Prospect Hill, which is uh, where the bulk of Stonewall Jackson's Second Corps had fought, fought uh, at the first Battle of Fredericksburg and where the majority of the troops that are facing Sedgwick are deployed. Uh, Lee came up with the idea to uh, leave approximately 10,000 soldiers under the command of Jubal Early uh, as a rear guard at Fredericksburg. And on the evening of April 30th, marched the bulk of the Army of Northern Virginia out to Chancellorsville. Uh, Sedgwick, after crossing on the 29th, pretty much sat static, uh, and it gave... Lee, the uh, idea, and and essentially uh, Lee figured out very quickly that this was no threat. Uh, There were a lot of Union soldiers down at this bridgehead, uh, 65,000 Union soldiers, in fact, but they weren't doing much of anything. Uh, So he and Stonewall Jackson decide that they're going to go and fight to the West, fight Hooker's forces, uh, and they leave Early behind. Now, Early was uh, the junior-ranking division commander within the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, again, a West Point graduate of 1837, hard-nosed fighter through and through, uh, very good at what he did. And he's going to try to keep up the ruse as long as possible uh, that there are more Confederates in the area than, than there actually were. They're going to leave tents up, uh, showing that their camps are much larger. They'll keep campfires burning, uh, much like they did when the Army of Northern Virginia leaves in June trying to head towards Gettysburg uh, during the Gettysburg campaign. So this is how early is going to help uh, baffle both Reynolds and Sedgwick. Um, the trains will keep running up to a place called Hamilton's Crossing just south of Fredericksburg, and the Union officers are going to climb up on top of a mansion, uh, which is today the, the Fredericksburg Country Club, and they're going to get up there and they're going to watch and they're going to see artillery being pulled away. Uh, they know that there are Confederates in front of them. It seems that they may be pulling out of the south. So no one has any definitive answer as to what's in front of them, and to compound Sedgwick's problems, he has really uh, only two companies of cavalry with him. Uh, Hooker has sent off the vast majority of the cavalry in a large raid, and uh, Sedgwick only has uh, his balloons, and as we've talked about, the, they're not really believing what the, the aeronauts are telling them, and the Hooker's not really believing everything that Sedgwick's telling him. He thinks that uh, the substantial force that's in front of him is, uh, is much more than meets the eye. So, Sedgwick is is not moving rapidly, not uh, attacking immediately. 
but eventually he starts to to work his way forward uh, and what we'll do is take another short break here and come back and find out what happens when Cedric finally does throw his men into action against Lee's rear guard, uh, this tiny force that is uh, the only thing keeping open Lee's communications with Richmond. Uh, We'll do that after a short break. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Chris White about Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Chris White about the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, during the Battle of Chancellorsville, as Stonewall Jackson is launching his devastating uh, flank attack on the Army of the Potomac, driving the 11th Corps of uh, General Oliver Howard into disarray, uh, the rest of the Union Army is, is attacking Lee's rear guard. And Chris, it, it's interesting to see how the the tables turn and suddenly Hooker, instead of being the, the hammer that's going to drive Lee against Sedgwick's corps, now he's under attack and he starts sending frantic messages to Sedgwick, you must attack, you must drive Lee against me. Uh, hurry up. And to, to short circuit ahead a little bit, uh, Cedric does eventually attack. He tries uh, Early's right flank and left flank and concludes the only way to get Early away from Fredericksburg is to do exactly what happened in February at the First Battle of Fredericksburg, which is go straight uphill into a very strongly defended position, the, the Marie's Heights with the sunken road and the stone wall, all legendary parts of, of the Civil War. It it must have seemed a forlorn hope to the Union troops to have to do the same thing that so many of them had failed to accomplish in December. Uh, it, absolutely. The the second battle of Fredericksburg, uh, which is going to take place on the morning of May 3rd of uh, 1863, is really a baffling battle that, that shouldn't have taken place on the, the uh, evening of May 2nd. Uh, out around the Chancellorsville Crossroads. Uh, Stonewall Jackson is going to launch that famous and audacious flank attack against Joseph Hooker. Uh, At this point, Hooker has nearly 90,000 troops around the Chancellorsville Crossroads at his disposal. 
Uh, throughout the battle, he's been stealing from Cedric's wing. Uh, he takes the third corps, then he takes the first corps. And now Cedric's down to his sixth corps and one division of the second corps. He has about 27,000, 28,000 troops to work with. Still, Cedric only has about 10,000 soldiers in front of him. And at first, on the evening of the second, he's going to receive these orders from Hooker uh, and it's very great tone that everything's going well, that the Confederates are retreating. Well, as the night wears on, more and more frantic messages, as you said, start arriving in Cedric's lap, and that is that uh, this retreat was no retreat at all and that Jackson is attacked. So uh, Cedric is going to have to make a night march up to Fredericksburg, and his orders from Hooker to take the uh, Orange Plank Road to the west uh, to march up there, to go to Fredericksburg, march west 12 miles, and arrive before dawn in Lee's rear. Uh, what Hooker has done is put all the cards on Cedric's table. Uh, so near 8 p.m. on May 2nd, uh, he, Cedric is supposed to march up into the city of Fredericksburg about two to three miles, then head out west and be out there to save uh, Hooker's bacon. And it's going to be a really daunting task. And Sedgwick, uh, as I talked about earlier, is not a guy who thinks outside the box. He's going to read the letter of this law. And unfortunately, that plank road is going to lead right over top of the old Maurice Heights battlefield. And that's exactly where Sedgwick's going to go. He's not going to try to take another road out to the west. He's going to march the bulk of Sixth Corps up into Fredericksburg, and he's going to make massive uh, assaults against a, a very undersized Confederate foe. Um, to the point where Sedgwick on the morning of May 3rd, it's going to take him all night to get into the city. Uh, and keep in mind, the 6th Corps during the first battle of Fredericksburg never stepped foot into the city of Fredericksburg. So this is brand new to them. So they at least didn't witness the slaughter that took place at Murray's Heights. They read about it and heard about it within the Army uh, scuttle. But now Sedgwick, if he comes up to Murray's Heights, is quickly going to find out how uh, strong this position is, even though there's only about a thousand Confederates holding the old Maurice Heights line. Um, and he's going to send out two regiments. Uh, they're going to sustain heavy casualties. They're going to be a reconnaissance in force, and as they go, they're going to be bloodied on the nose. And then Cedric's going to have to come up with a new plan to attack uh, Maurice Heights, which is going to be pretty innovative. Um, his division commander, John Newton, will claim that he came up with the idea, and that will be to an attack out two roads that lead towards Murray's Heights, not go out in a traditional line of battle, but go out as what they call lances to try to pierce the Confederate lines. They'll go out to call on the force. Uh, and then at the same time, a traditional line of battle will go across the old Murray's Heights battleground, try to tie down the Confederates there, and then two more forces will attack north of the city and south of the city. Uh, at first, it's an abysmal failure. Uh, the two lances, the heads of them are broken off. Uh, Colonel George Spear, the 61st Pennsylvania, is killed in action uh, as he tries to lead a, an attack of William Street. And then uh, Thomas Johns, commander of the 7th Massachusetts, is, is mortally wounded uh, trying to go out uh, on Hanover Street. And then all of a sudden the Confederate line is going to be overwhelmed at Murray's Heights. Uh, a big controversy comes up after the battle within the Confederate ranks, stating that the Union Army put out this duplicitous uh, white flag of truce and under a white flag of truce, these Union soldiers attack them, and that's how they take Murray's Heights. Uh, very little truth to that, uh, but it's a, a great story nonetheless. Uh, but Cedric is able to take uh, Murray's Heights, but it's not until about noon on May the 3rd, which puts him six hours behind Hooker's timetable to be there to save his bacon on the morning of May the 3rd. So, at this point, even now, now Hooker has been been uh, sort of shell-shocked by Stonewall Jackson's flank attack. Uh, he's drawn his troops back into a, a semicircle, almost a circular defensive position, waiting for Cedric to arrive. Uh, Cedric's not going to get there in time, but he's still, uh, he's still got a, a large, relatively fresh force. He, he now holds Marie's Heights um, that, that had defied the Union Army in, back in December. Uh, what stops him from just going forward the next day and marching into the back of Lee's army and, and breaking through and joining up with Hooker and, and winning the battle after all? Well, Cedric would keep pressing on on the afternoon of May the 3rd. 
uh, but Sedgwick actually slows himself down. He is going to halt uh, the two divisions that made the attacks at Murray's Heights on the morning of May the 3rd, uh, Newton's and Howe's division, and he's going to call up his first division under uh, William T. Brooks. His nickname is Bully Brooks because the guy's a bully. And uh, Brooks comes up, and it's going to take over an hour to get Brooks's division up and online to start marching out to the west, out towards Hooker's forces. In the meantime, Early is trying to salvage his force, try to block uh, Sedgwick if he tries to move south towards Richmond, which isn't Sedgwick's uh, plan at all. He's going to go out west to try to save Hooker. But into the mix steps uh, about 1,800 Alabamians under Cadmus Wilcox. Uh, Wilcox, who had started the morning of May the 3rd around Banks Ford, uh, woke up looking for a fight and heard the fighting around uh, Fredericksburg march to the sounds of the guns. And now he is the only uh, line slowing down Sedgwick's forces, and he's going to fight a, a great delaying action. Uh, and he's going to stop Sedgwick Cold at a place called Salem Heights, or also called Salem Church. Uh, today it's the uh, furniture stores and RVs, racks, and all kinds of other things. Uh, but at the time, it was the highest point between Chancellorsville uh, and Fredericksburg. Uh, so Wilcox is going to step in and slow down the entire six courts. The point is going to take them until uh, you know near 5 o'clock to launch their next attack at Salem Church. And they're still six miles short of their goal, uh, which was Chancellorsville. So that that's not going to do it. They're not going to break through and rescue uh, Hooker from from himself uh, at that point. Uh, the, the you mentioned the development there. I want to touch on that before we we uh, run out of time. But uh, what? How, the, the the subtitle of the book is the battles of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church. Um, let's talk about the Battle of Salem Church. What what happens there? Uh, Salem Church will be uh, a great moment for Cadmus Wilcox. This is going to be his finest hour, if you ask me. Uh, during the war, uh, Wilcox is going to slow down uh, the Sixth Corps as long as humanly possible, and then fall back to a trench line in a woods around a small. Uh, church that was built in the 1840s, simply called Salem Church, a uh, small brick church, uh, very nondescript building, and it's a perfect defensive position for the Confederates, who have sent word back to Lee's main force around uh, Chancellorsville. Uh, this uh, member of the 17th Mississippi comes riding into uh, Lee's headquarters, and Lee, who is just smashed Hooker sailing around Chancellorsville, a, a great moment in Confederate uh, history, and Lee sees this rider come in, and the rider is telling him about how Sedgwick's broken through and all is lost in the rear. And Lee turns to this man and calms him down and, and says that uh, he thinks that Major Sedgwick means him no harm, not Major General. Uh, Sedgwick had served under Lee in the old army, and he still refers to him as Major Sedgwick, and he knew uh. how close Sedgwick could be uh, being his old subordinate. And Lee is, again, in the face of a, a superior enemy, uh, going to split his forces, march arguably the hardest fighting division of the Army of Northern Virginia at the battle, uh, Lafayette McClaw's division, out to Salem Church. And Wilcox sees them coming and essentially springs a trap on the Union Sixth Corps. He allows them to attack. Uh, he tucked in McClaw's division just behind Salem Heights and right at the right time, at the right moment, uh, outsprung McClaw's division and Bully Brooks's. Uh, six core men are going to be uh, smashed right in the nose uh, by this Confederate punch and then a counterattack that's going to drive them sp- falling back uh, towards the Rappahannock River, uh, towards a place called Banks's Ford. Uh, Bully Brooks, the Union Division commander in charge, is going to turn to one of his aides and say, 25 years in the Army, Mr. Davis, and it's all up. Uh, so it's, he knows that essentially this will be end his career with the Army of the Potomac. Uh, but Salem Church will be a, a fierce battle, only about an hour long. Uh, but it's going to be a, a fight, very personal unit-to-unit action. Uh, it's going to see some of the best uh, fighting units in the Sixth Corps take on some of the best fighting units in McClaws' division. Now, you mentioned, uh, actually, you start the, the book out mentioning what we can see today of the site of uh, the Battle of Salem Church. And... 
it's it's not a a pretty picture. Um, there's what's left of the the, the battlefield. Uh, it's what I refer to as a dead battlefield. Uh, Salem Church is still there today, the, the church building itself. Um, a, a new Salem Church was built in 1954 by the congregation, which is still active. Um, and in the 1960s, the church is given to the National Park Service. Uh, there's about 2.74 acres there. Uh, there are two monuments to um, the Union, which will be to uh, the 23rd New Jersey, as well as the 15th New Jersey. Uh, one is beside a furniture store. Uh, the other monument is uh, near the site of New Salem Church. Uh, there are two other uh, monuments out there, one placed by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and another one placed by one of Jackson's former staffers, uh, James Power Smith. And uh, the church itself is open uh, usually on Saturdays by uh, congregation members uh, during the summer. Uh, you can still see the battle-scarred building. Uh, but the fields, the open fields and the woods that surrounded the area uh, today are furniture stores, uh, Arby's, uh, numerous gas stations. Uh, starting in 1981, development started to engulf the Salem Church battlefield. Now today, it's really a postage stamp-sized battlefield, which is difficult to access and sometimes dangerous to access uh, because of eight lanes of traffic running through it. So... With uh, with Fredericksburg nearby, with Chancellorsville nearby, with these these battles that uh, appear in every textbook that everyone has has heard of, uh, the battle, the second battle of Fredericksburg and the battle of Salem Church get lost uh, in the shuffle. If we had more time, which I, I wish we did, we could talk about how how this came about, how these. Uh, other narratives of, of the battle overshadowed uh, the preservation and memorialization of, of this fight. But at, I, I think I said at the beginning of our talk how frequently someone will say, what else is there to write about the war? There's so much already out there. And for uh, you and Chris to have found this really remarkable uh, military story, this, this battle about which so little has been written and so little is known is is quite uh, an accomplishment. Uh, and the book is very, very well done, very interesting. I certainly enjoyed it and uh, uh, hope it does well for you. But unfortunately, that does bring us to the, the end of our time. So uh, I want to thank you for being on the show, and I hope uh, maybe we can see each other at a battlefield sometime. That sounds great. Thank you very much for having me out. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 